Hi, today I want to talk about decolonizing architecture. I know it may feel like there's a new headline or campaign every other week claiming to decolonize this or that, whether it's decolonizing ecology or decolonizing your diet. I mean, come on, has decolonization become gentrified? That's a separate topic, but let's keep it real. Colonization lies at the root of why many of our institutions and infrastructures are the way they are. That's especially true with architecture. Conquistadores and settler colonizers invaded and stole lands to eradicate the people there and build what they believed should exist on those lands instead, right? We're going to get into all that today with our two special guests whom I've had the great pleasure of meeting. Cruz Garcia and Natalie Frankowski are a couple who practice and teach architecture together with their studio, Way Architecture Think Tank. Cruz is Puerto Rican, Natalie is French, and together their brains can create some pretty radical and inspirational ideas. I absolutely love them and their perspective on design. There's a richness to the world of architecture that you can miss without learning perspectives like theirs. What's the history behind how a place was designed? Is the solution to build more or is it to dismantle? How does design factor in the people who live and work in a place? How do we learn from cultures? This is the Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Yesenia Funes. Hello, everyone. We are here today with Way Architecture Think Tank which is a planetary studio that practices by questioning the political, historical, and material legacy and imperatives of architecture and urbanism through a panoramic and critical approach. Founded in Brussels during the financial crisis of 2008 by Puerto Rican architect, artist, curator, educator, author, and theorist Cruz Garcia, and French architect, artist, curator, educator, author, and poet, Natalie Frankowski. Way is one of their several platforms of public engagement that include Beijing-based anti-profit art space, Intelligentsia Gallery, and the free and alternative education platform and trade school, Loud Readers. Natalie and Cruz, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Super happy to be here. Thanks a lot for having us. I'm super, super excited to dig into all of this with you. Um, you know, we met a few months back in Denmark, and I was blown away um, by the way by which you all talk about architecture. I'm very new to this realm. It's sort of a theme that our, our listeners will hear on this podcast. Um, but listening to you to speak when we met in Denmark really gave me a new perspective into what architecture means, into the, the power that architecture holds. And so I'm really just excited to hear about what drew you both into this world. Could you share a little bit about that history and how you two got involved in architecture? Yes, sure. I think like for me, it might be something that was also driven by my family. Like I know that um, actually like the, I think one of the brother of my grandfather was an architect in Poland. So I was always surrounded by, I think my, my grandfather initially wanted my father to be an architect. So there was a lot of like architecture around me somehow, like books and, and things like this. But I feel like what's really opened the, the field for me and was really relevant was um, studying in Paris-La Villette because so, so knowing that again like uh, there was like some, some something coming from family that, that made me decide to study architecture when I was uh, studying La Villette I was in a department of art architecture and philosophy and suddenly I could bring questions that were much wider than 
for example, the design question. That was the one that I, I was more used to. And I, I could really like combine different interests, different tools. If it was also the tool of, of movie making, the tool of writing, the, the tool of questioning and understand architecture as like something that was much more political and that would would help me a lot to frame questions that I had and hopefully try to find different tools to to provoke uh, discussions about uh, uh, things that were really like pressing issues that was around us. Yeah, for me, like in Puerto Rico is really uh, strange. It's very, I think, very, very different different to the French context and to Natalie's context in the sense that um, I didn't know what an architect was, but never met any. I didn't know any architect or didn't thought of architecture as a profession, although I always wanted to be uh, somebody that designs maybe buildings or spaces. Um, and in Puerto Rico, that's, I thought it was what an engineer is. Um, so I was uh, about to study engineering <clears throat> the university and I have enrolled to school and everything. And I remember like last minute uh, change of decision to not go to the university that had engineering because uh, we prefer to be in the track team. Me and one of my friends from high school uh, prefer to be in the track team of the university that was close to where uh, we grew up, where I grew up like 10 minutes from home, Rio Piedras, um, and they didn't have engineering. And I remember the director of the athletic department, he was trying to figure out like what, what was there for me. And they told me, well, there's no engineering here, <laughs> but there's architecture. And if you want, like we can make you like a special program in the first year, you take some of the classes and you see if that's something that interests you and you apply for the year after because you already passed the architecture has its own application deadlines. Uh, you know, and I, and I was there in the architecture school for a couple of years, not very interested, to be honest with you. I didn't have much connection to it. And a couple of years later, mm. uh, I started like kind of reading some things, uh, particularly political things. I mean, some of them connect to Back to France with the situation is, uh, I read this amazing quote that said that urbanism doesn't exist and architecture exists like a like a commodified product in the Marx sense of the world, like an ideology. And he compared architecture to Coca-Cola. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this sounds like something that, uh, like th there's some anger in this text that is kind of interesting to me and uh, I can identify with it. And luckily I was also studying literature with some amazing Puerto Rican writers like Rafael Acevedo and Eduardo Lalo. And and I was asking them questions about like what's happening in the sixties, and then they were explaining to me, and and then I saw that oh, there's like a segue from architecture to get there. I mean, I I love designing and all that, but that's that's never enough. Mm. And I feel like in a way similar to Natalie, it was when when like literature and and very important fields of knowledge start kind of clicking. That's when architecture kind of makes sense in a way. Yeah, I love that um, words and writing have been some through ways for you all to sort of connect more deeply with architecture. I'm curious to hear about the milestones um, that you all have experienced throughout your practice. Are there any milestones um, that have informed your architecture practice and values? Well, architecture is quite a slow and long profession. And I feel as, you know, as we were pointing out already in thinking about how we approach architecture, the um, richness of architecture is like the fact that you can 
define it in many ways. So you can practice mm. it in many different ways. And it means also that it will shift and it will change sometimes during your lifetimes. Of course, it depends, you know, how you approach approach the field and, and the profession. If it's, you know, some people will have um, different types of path, but I feel for us was every time we we moved from places to places, I feel that was also, also like a big learning curve and it shifted a lot in the type of projects we did and maybe of the questions we did. Um, I'm sure Cruz will, will add on on that, but uh, I feel like for example, the, the first big, I think, uh, move was when we actually moved physically to Beijing, uh, where we practiced for seven years, because that was really like a place that forged our thinking, our way of working. Uh, the speed of the city was, was quite amazing. The fact that the city was also going through a lot of changes that we could really visibly see how people would live there. And that brought a lot of, of different ways of practicing architecture, of, of producing different types of projects. After when we moved back, for example, to US, then, you know, it was also like summer 2020, we were here. And again, like another shift happened. Uh, Cruz was in the street. He can speak more about it. So I feel like really like being in different places, different contexts, depending also of of course, of, of what was unraveling at that time helped us a lot to to change and to enrich how we would uh, see and approach the projects. Yeah, and, and there is something about, like, as Natalie mentioned, all those places, like, uh, like we met in, in Belgium, kind of hated what we were doing, this sort of relationship of architecture and capital, moved to Amsterdam, had, like, a really close encounters with white supremacy, end up going to Beijing, right, running away from Europe in a way, <clears throat> and then discovering, not discovering, like discovering ourselves in this uh, place in the middle of modernity in that really violent, fast, uh, creative process of modernization that Beijing was going through, then opening a gallery there, like uh, publishing a couple of books. When we were there, uh, Intelligentsia was really fundamental for like starting developing all these like curatorial and publishing platforms that engage with many different people from many different places. And as Natalie said, like uh, coming back to the US in 2016, also a very critical year. Uh, you know, if we're talking about white supremacy, um, and then experiencing 2020 in Pittsburgh, in Virginia, I feel like all of those are really fundamental. Mm years to understand like we finished school in 2008 right like in the middle of the financial crisis then went all the way to beijing and then back to the u.s uh, in the middle of what we are right now and i feel like this work that has been produced there that in a way is a reflection of all of those things and in a way our practice and ourselves also a reflection of having lived in those places we always tell everybody that we are also a kind of beijing practice because uh Many of the ways we in which we approach um, our practice, uh, whatever it is in architecture and art and writing, has to deal with the fact that we were based in Beijing for seven years, uh, but also I'm Puerto Rican and Natalie's French, right? And we are like kind of entangled in all these um, discourses of uh, decolonialism and anti-imperialism uh, against white supremacy, right? Like, and how do they manifest in the different places where we go, while also like touching all these other kind of interests. That our, that our work has um, 
and and relationships with people right because uh, i think uh, a lot of our, of what we do has to deal with teaching on one hand and the other one on developing networks of solidarity through 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 our practice so. wow and so all these networks are being built and established in all these different places right where y'all have lived and i imagine that there's like the people right the culture um but also the built environment and all these different pieces of these different places that you you two are like taking along with yourselves to helping inform your practice and helping guide sort of the direction, right, where, where y'all hope to take way and the direction they all hope to take the architecture field at large. Yeah, totally, totally. There is, um, it is, uh, I feel like we started defining our practice as a planetary studio on a way responding to that idea of relationships but also because uh, many of the questions we we're asking had to deal with questions that are planetary in the scale, in the scope, in the relationship to people. So, so yeah, it, it becomes a continuous exercise of uh, redefinition. But I'm curious how you all are redefining what it means to be an architect, because I think that the approach that you two have is is quite interesting. Yeah, I feel like one... So it's, it's linking a little bit to your previous question too. I think one of the biggest shifts that happened uh, is, is that, is actually understanding what architecture could potentially be or how we could potentially practice architecture. Um, because I feel like, the, as you mentioned, like the impact is there, right? We are dealing with, in, in some cases, physical rendering of of designs, right? That affect everybody's life uh, that could be, that can be and that are really, really violent, right? Uh, depending to whom, you, uh, to who you serve, and for whom uh, you are designing, for whom you are building. And I feel for us, like uh, thinking really about you know architecture being this field that was meant for for approaching the question of a living living together, right? To then, how could we really find ways to? To practice in a more solidary way, um, in a more understanding way. Cruz, how about how about I'm curious to hear like how you um, are, are thinking about this redefining what it means to be an architect. Yeah, that, I think like what Natalie was saying. There's a, I think I got I'm gonna talk about several things at the same time. On on one hand, there's this definition of uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein that we love. That is uh, from the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, where he says, "The limits of my language mean the limits of my world." Mm. I think also the limits of my language limit how can you define something, architecture being there. I also had to bring, like, um, we were recently doing an interview to Mabel Wilson, the architect and historian, uh, for our issue that we're editing on reparations for the Journal of Architecture Education. Mm -hmm. And in the conversation, uh, Mabel brought this amazing idea that she's been discussing that maybe we shouldn't be calling it architecture. Architecture has such a European, Latin connotation and it comes with a body of knowledge. And, you know, you know when you talk about like the, the prison system, even parks can be also quite violent, right? Because parks are used to erase the communities many times too. It, 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 it's a very loaded discipline, right? Like the archi, the combination of archi and techne, you know, and all this. At the, when you go in first year in architecture school, everybody's always like, oh, what does architecture mean? So it's the combination of the space with this, right? And it has a kind of like a Greek mythology type of um, of connotation. Um, and, you know, I, I love this text by uh, Leslie Loco, 
is called African Space Magicians, and 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 she talks about how in Zulu the word for architect is space magician. And what does it mean when you think about being a space magician? What are the relationships to your environment? <clears throat> and in that way, we need more words to define what we're doing. Because maybe, yeah, maybe it's architecture, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's uh, something else. And and at some point, we were really focused on redefining what the what architecture can be and should be and should be doing and addressing. But but more recently, we also been thinking about maybe there's other words that we need, other concepts that we need to bring in order to describe really what this world making implies. Uh, on one hand, and also. Uh, if architecture is uh, historically problematic, how can we how can we dismantle it and unbuild it, right? Because uh, there's on one hand, the, the, but as you say, you know, the people that lay out plans and 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 drawings for constructing things, but if those things are the enemy, how we also open up the possibility of taking those things down, demolishing them, and 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 you know, abolishing them. So. There's something interesting there. So I think like the constant redefinition of of what we do and what we think about, um, it, it, it gets to a point where we start even questioning the the very premise of the word of of, of architecture, right? Or the architect. Mm, yeah, space magician sounds so playful. Sounds so inviting. Like I love that because um, there is this sort of I think wall that goes up when someone talks about architecture, it feels so like, I don't know, I guess it feels so elite. Like it feels like something that you need to be invited into versus something that you can just explore on your own. Um, but that term space magician, it feels much more welcoming. <laughs> and I think a term that maybe folks um, can feel much more interested by. So I kind of love, I kind of love that. And yeah, and it's really interesting because as you mentioned at the beginning, when you said like, ah, oh, you know, I'm new to this field or I'm just uh, paying attention to it. And I always I always think like, that it's not possible, right? Like all of us are so, especially what you, what you do, like you are so, so much embedded into thinking about the environment and, and the build and destroy environment is architecture in that sense. But, but it's like the way that we use architecture it makes it feel like something unattainable, unattainable mm -hmm. and professionalized, right? Like, and, and that's, that's really interesting, exactly yeah. going with what you were saying. I mean, it feels like artistic, you know, like I think about those like European, the European architecture of like, you know, the 17th century or something. I mean, I'm just right, speaking right. up. <laughs> right. No, no, totally, 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 totally. But that's sort of like the the vibe that I think people have when they think about it. Um, but you're right. It's like, it's so much more, um, it connects to us in much more ways than, than like history. Um, and, and we've been alluding to a lot of the, the harms, right, that architecture has played, you know, I, I like the term that Natalie used to describe pieces of architecture as violent. And we've been sort of alluding to some of this throughout our conversation so far, but I think it'd be good for, for us to get a little explicit in sharing and breaking down for readers the way that architecture relates to the climate crisis, to social injustice, and how architecture could serve as a as a as an avenue for decolonization um i think that there's some some important potential here well yeah uh, you know recently we've been we're we're about to to republish or to or to publish for the first time physically our manual of architecture and architecture uh, manual of Ar anti-racist architecture education 
And in that process, we've been also developing some new diagrams that try to explain how the very idea of modernity, right, coming via the Enlightenment, via the construction of concepts like history, science, logic, um, are deeply embedded on the on the footprint of the plantation, on the footprint of capitalism, mm -hmm. on the footprint of white supremacy. Right, like the the first thing that is done, you know, once colonizers arrive is to, to to claim the land, is to plan, to make architecture, right? To make right. buildings, to make plantations, to uh, and, and in order to maintain that and to produce, you know, crops that are going to bring cash, they enslave people. So there's a really, really close and problematic relationship between that architecture, right? The architecture of modernity in the Europe, Eurocentric sense and the... And the the footprint of uh, ecological spoliation and genocide, right? Ecocide and genocide are tied, you know, by that colonial footprint that is super architectural, right? And and that's why today many of the big questions, um, the struggles, right? Like uh, if it is, whether it's uh, with the climate crisis or Black Lives Matter, right? All the mm -hmm. indigenous struggles around the world are super architectural. They have to deal with destroying the environment with the energy needed to to produce uh, and maintain cities that are usually where wealth is accumulated. And all that comes from that legacy, right? Like uh, also mm -hmm. there's a sci scientific papers that connect the beginning of the Anthropocene, right, with the arrival of Europeans in the Americas and the millions of people that died, and how nature was not taken care of for the first for the first time in in that period, right, and the CO two emissions dro uh, dropped, and since then yeah. it has been increasing ever since, right? Like there's scientific papers that connected to that, so we can see that relationship between death and architecture, right, and the environment, the decay of the environment, and the, uh, it's like all tied up. That's why we also talk about uh, the relationship between uh, ecological justice, you know, and, and questions about race and gender, for example, right? How how uh, historically disenfranchised communities are the ones that are the most affected by by all these questions. But uh, but again, like architecture is always an enabler in all of this. It's the tool that is used to create the colony to 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 consolidate the power of the of the um, occupying state right right and hearing you talk it reminds me of like i think this reality that a lot of us who live in cities and who live in urban spaces you know it's, it's easy for us to forget that at some point in time whether that was hundreds or thousands of years ago you know the places where we live now are not what they are right like there was a time like i live in queens new york and there was a time where we have a tiny forest park here I, I imagine there was a time where that forest was not just a park but it was actually all of this land right and to to imagine what had to have happened to to the ecosystems and the wildlife and the nature and the peoples who were here in order for these buildings and these roads and these lights and you know sewage systems and all this infrastructure that allows us to live here what had to have happened to what was there before in order for us to be existing here is is quite profound um and i don't think many of us actually pause to sort of ruminate right like on what was here before before we were here um 
And it's an important point that you're raising because it, it opens up space for that thinking. Totally. And not only that, but the fact that to maintain, right, like the energy that is needed to to maintain the production of the city comes also from other places, <laughs> right? Like all the materials, resources, all the energy, right? Like it's, it's, being ex it's still extracted for places like that. Mm -hmm. So that's also the, like how we cannot really lose sight of the footprint of all these things and how this actually is always a planetary question. Yeah, yeah, it's ongoing. Um, and that's where where we are um, in terms of grappling with the climate crisis. I know that education is such a big part of the work that you all do as well. Um, and your platform, Loud Readers, is one where you hope to educate more folks about architecture, but also the connections uh, that architecture has with all these other realms. Can you break down for folks you know, what Loud Readers is, how it works, and the importance of educational resources like it? So uh, building on that legacy of the that we talk about a bit of the plantation, right? Um, we like to think of the you know Puerto Rico being the oldest colony in the world, invaded in the second trip by Columbus, being 400 years a colony from Spain, 120 something years from the U.S. There is a form of knowledge that is born in the Caribbean that we feel is really important to understand the regimes of necropolitics and necrocapitalism in the world, the rest of the world. As the world gets warmer, in a way, it gets tropicalized, mm. uh, so to speak. At the same time, you know that some avant-garde design schools were taking place in Europe, and that's what you know we get taught in school. You know, look at the Bauhaus, look at this school. You know making beautiful design artifacts and objects, even if they have a really problematic relationship between, you know, uh, gender and, and race and so on. Uh, we, we, we found that this school in the Caribbean that was all over the place, you know, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, in, uh, in uh, Cuba, but also in Durham, in New York, where workers in the tobacco factories, right, that were these talking about the plantation, right, and the and occupation and, and capitalism. Workers in the tobacco factories that were denied any means of formal education. And we had to remember that some of these people are either former slaves or the children of former slaves. They don't have access to education, so they will pick one of their own that knew how to read, to read for them during the entire workday, right? That's where the concept of loud reading comes from. Mm -hmm. Soap operas come from that tradition, but also, you know, at the beginning, the practice that was mostly done by men until there's like people like Puerto Rican anarcho-syndicalist organizer an utopian author, Luisa Capetillo, that was this amazing eccentric hardcore organizer she was arrested several times for wearing pants in public she writes books about free love and feminism and she used to run in new york a restaurant and boarding house where she would serve the delicious vegetarian meals for workers even if they didn't have any money right so the literature that capetillo would read in the factories It was not only the classics like Dostoevsky or Victor Hugo and Flaubert, you know, and and uh, and newspapers and stuff like that. But she would loud read political theory like Marx and Engels and Kropotkin and Bakunin, right? Like uh, anarchist philosophy and communist philosophy. And she would also loud read some of her own fiction that she wrote. Uh, fiction where workers would rob banks and live happily ever after in the countryside <laughs> eating delicious vegetarian meals right so 
she was uh, helping forge an anti-capitalist imagination and, and workers were organized and strike and like, it would be tens of thousands of people striking, right? Like there were other 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 organizers like Juana Colón, for example, that was not only for the workers, it was also for the unemployed and so on, right? So there was all these amazing women mostly, right? Like in this case, really important women organizing uh, and making this huge movement and the practice, of course, it became illegal. Persecuted, people got shot and killed by the police and the corporations, right? Like in the newly occupied territory of Puerto Rico by the US, right? It used to be occupied by Spain. Mm-hmm. And then the practice kind of changed and, you know, he was persecuted. And then, you know, in 2000, in 2016, uh, when, when with all the, you know, what's happening with Black Lives Matter, first with COVID, right? COVID uh, pushed the sort of students, you know, they couldn't attend the university anymore. They were kind of left hanging in many places. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these places that, you know, they make you pay a lot of money, all of a sudden they were not really taking any responsibility or pro- providing any protection to the students. And we thought, like, you know, like, in the same way that the loud readers were using the space of capitalist exploitation for generating some form of, uh, you know, anti-capitalist uh, imagination, maybe we can reappropriate the tools of exploitation that we have in the university, like Zoom and stuff like that, <laughs> and, and, and reappropriate it to provide also space for networks of solidarity. And then we started this platform that was already building on, 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 on a practice we had from our post-novice collective where we started making this sort of in, in, in planetary syllabus, you know, of uh, the anti-colonial thinkers. And, and we wanted to see, you know, how can we make this as an education practice that is not only us as a collective of artists and architects and designers and writers, but rather a popular thing. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, we started the platform. We said, like, you know, let's make cloud readers a thing. Take these uh, spaces, virtual spaces, and provide, you know, like invite people, philosophers, thinkers, activists, so they can loud read and present something. And, and it's going to be online, free and accessible for everybody, like a growing archive. And then, you know, it's been, yeah, a couple of years doing this. Sorry, 2020, 2020, right? I'm saying 2016, I'm confused. In okay, I was going to ask, I was like, wait, was it 2020 or 2016? Okay, so this was born out of the pandemic. So a lot of yes. was born out of the need that you saw from from students and the, the abandonment that they faced from these educational institutions. Yes. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, there, there was this uh, a, a critique of alienation, right? Like not only we are alienated from from our means of production, but also alienated from each other. You know, there was a point, of, like, especially, you know, I've seen a lot of international students, they had to even leave the campus and leave, you know, in Pittsburgh in the middle of like a place that they didn't know. And I was like, man, this is kind of brutal. Then we started discovering how in Brazil, the university is closed from one day to the other. And the students they didn't even know what to do, right? So yeah. it was a real planetary thing too, where people were kind of, in a way abandoned by the institutions yeah yeah fully and and we felt like i think there's something we can do to challenge that alienation 
And so how does it work? Like someone like someone that you all invite, there's like an activist, a thought leader, um, an expert of sort, they record a video or they're like loud reading something that they've put together or reading from someone else. And that's shared online digitally for other folks to access at no cost. So so there's different ways. Some of them is like that. We invite somebody or somebody says, like, you know, I would like to do loud reading. And so that's they read the things that they, the books that they wrote or some really influential books for them, you know, like um, uh, Luis Otoniel, Loud Reading, um, Kropotkin, right? Like referencing the same books that Capetillo was uh, was uh, referencing or or Traum Novelle, Loud Reading, Bell Hooks, uh, Octavia Butler, sorry, Octavia Butler's uh, The Parable of the Sower or... Um, uh, Raquel Salas Rivera allowed reading some of his own poetry or um, then we have run a, a literal trade school for 10 days an experimental trade school that was free and everybody could do several workshops and lectures and seminars a day and we do all these workshops online and it's all available. You can download the files even after the thing is done but also you can enroll and do it live. Also we are planning to do one uh, in person in Puerto Rico next summer, uh, a 10-day program also with people coming from uh, the Pan-Caribbean, you know, this really big zone of, uh, of really important knowledge. And, and, and so the idea is that it has become also a publishing platform, a uh, space for, for a, like a growing archive and, and having people from all around the world, you know, like people uh, loud reading from Beijing or loud reading from uh, Cape Town, like, uh, like Ilse Wolf or or, or Kensai the Clerk or, or you know, uh, having people out read us uh, from Ciudad Mexico or from Santiago de Chile, right? Or from Brussels or from uh, the Dominican Republic, right? So the idea is that there is, in the same spirit of the loud readers, there is this network of people that are willing to share knowledge, right? Like to, to foster networks of intellectual solidarity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And why do we need these types of educational resources, especially in regards to um, the disconnect I think the public has with architecture? Dear, would you like to go? If I can just add uh, something that a bit ties up some of the discussions before, um, is is exactly your point. Uh, I think also some something that was really important for us from the beginning of our practice is to try to find different platforms that would widen the discussion around architecture, but try also to to approach architecture really more as a collective practice in a way that we we need to acknowledge, you know, that our own limitations. And I think really early on that was something that was really important for us to always try to to learn from each other and to i think that's also like a, a problem when we think a lot about um architecture is how uh, again how strong the impact is on everybody's life but how ex exclusive uh the field really is so how can we you know how can we think of a profession that wants to bring answers to to others but that doesn't want to include others in discussion. So I feel like, and, and going back to the platform of the loud readers, again, Luisa Capetillo was so in, um, inspiring for us because not only did she create the platform, but she also had the idea that, you know, other people would become loud readers as she would be uh, uh, kind of 
it's not even teaching, right? It's more about exchanging, exchanging knowledges to 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 uh, bring other people the, the tools and the capacity to to do that too, and to to find our our ways to to express themselves. Like even she would organize like workshop of writing. The the other workers also would would create plays, uh, write fictions with her. So I feel like also that's something for us that is really important: is how can we expand always. Uh, the collect the idea of a collective, our network. How can we include more and more people? Learn from each, each other. Alone, I feel we are so limited. So we really believe in the power of a collective, and that's what brings us hope, especially when we think of a profession such as architecture. And you know, going back to what Cruz was expl explaining, all the, the implication, the really real and violent implication that the field can have in everyday everyday life and thinking of, of the futures. Yeah, that feels like a really powerful um, sort of way to wrap up our discussion here, Natalie. You know, I'm, I'm asking all of our guests to share a quote um, to end our episode. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what quote you all might share to, you know, that helps keep you inspired and that signals the world that, that you all want to see. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just uh, share a quote that is the quote that closes the the manual of anti-racist architectural education, but also is the one of the opening statements of our collective Posnovis. The only purpose of education is to make new worlds collectively. This requires the practice of curiosity as a daily habit and the exercise of dignified and purposeful rebelliousness. Other worlds are possible. Wow. That's from the introduction to the syllabus to the Tobacco Intergalactic School, Posnovis branch in the Americas. Definitely feels like um, the theme of Another World is Possible is going to be a big one throughout the episode and throughout the podcast at large. So thank you so much, Cruz, for sharing that with us. And thank you, Natalie, as well, for, for being with us and sharing your expertise. Really, really, really excited to introduce loud readers to our listeners. and. Um, to see how you all continue to shape the field. Thank you. Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing is a podcast of Revisions, a media initiative supported by REARC Institute, a philanthropic organization committed to supporting architectures of planetary well-being. For more information on REARC, please visit www.rearc.institute. This season is hosted by Yesenia Funes, for more information on her work, you can follow her online at YesFun, Y-E-S-S-F-U-N, and her work, The Front Lines, at Atmos Magazine. This podcast is produced by Mina Kwan and Andy Christians. Music by Inatlas. Atlas.